Welcome, everybody, to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. We are on to episode 20. It's very, very exciting. We've been uh, doing this for uh, quite a while now, enough to, enough, to, enough to pretend like we know what we're doing, I would say. Um, we've been having so much fun with the, with the broadcast. Uh, it's always a good time to get to engage with people. Uh, it's fantastic to have a platform uh, on which we can have this discussion. Uh, and as always, we want to encourage you to join that discussion. You can engage with us on Twitter at ISM podcast underscore uh, same for on Periscope. If you want to watch live there instead of on blog talk radio, where we are currently broadcasting, you can do so young athlon 399 is hosting that for us this evening. As always, you can follow Scott. That is my intrepid co-host at El Duderino. That's on uh, uh, Twitter and on Periscope. That's E L D U D E. I-R-E-N-O. You can follow myself at Dopinephrine, D-O-P-I-N-E-P-H-R-I-N-E. And if you want to call in and speak with us live, we welcome that. You can call us at 646-564-9551, and you can be on the show and speak with us. It's going to be a really, really exciting episode. Um, we've got a lot to unpack. We've got a lot to cover, and we think it's going to be pretty, pretty punchy, pretty fast-moving, pretty engaging. Um, the, the first half of the show, we're going to focus on skepticism. The second half will be a special discussion uh, with, our, uh, with our guest, uh, uh, Mikey. He's going to be here to talk about inculcation, um, uh, partially from a personal standpoint. So we encourage everybody to stick around for the second hour when we will have our guest here uh, to speak with us about that. How are you doing today, Scott? I am doing very well, sir. Yourself? Oh, well, as always. Um, we had so much fun going over, uh, skepticism this week. Uh, I, I had the, I had the pleasure of kind of, uh, getting to revisit some of the, uh, early thought experiments, uh, that are, that are employed to explore skepticism, uh, when it's reasonable, why it's reasonable, uh, and why disbelief in extraordinary claims is a, uh, rational position to take, um, we're going to get into that here pretty quickly. Uh, we, we've got a lot to cover, so we don't want to spend too much time at the top. But a few weeks ago, um, we, had, uh, we, we started an episode talking about Steve Bannon and some of his attitudes. This is uh, uh, the chief strategist for the Trump White House. Um, we talked about some of the statements that right. he made in the Vatican where he talked about the 20th century essentially being boiled down to the values of the Judeo-Christian West versus atheism, which is pretty gross. Um, but it was a bit concerning that he was one of the most powerful people in the country and therefore in the world. Um, he was put on the, uh, on the National Security Council. We were talking about that at the time. Uh, and there, there has been a bit of an update on that. Scott, uh, can you fill us in on what happened today? Yeah, um, in an article from the New York Times today by Peter uh, Baker says President Trump reshuffled his national uh, security organization on Wednesday, removing his chief strategist, Stephen K. Bannon, from a top policymaking committee and restoring senior military and intelligence officials who had been downgraded when he first came into office. The shift was orchestrated by Lieutenant General H.R. McCaster, who was tapped as Mr. Trump's national security advisor after the resignation of Michael T. Flynn, 
who stepped down in February after being caught misleading Vice President Mike Pence and other White House officials about his contacts with Russia's ambassador. General McMaster inherited an organizational scheme for the National Security Council that stirred protests because of Mr. Bannon's role. The original setup made Mr. Bannon the former chairman of Breibart News, a member of the Principals Committee that typically includes cabinet-level officials like the Vice President, Secretary of State, and Defense Secretary. The original order also made the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Director of National Intelligence uh, only occasional participants, as issues demanded. Critics said Mr. Bannon's presence in the national security policymaking structure risked politicizing foreign policy. Uh, A new order issued by Mr. Trump dated Tuesday and made public on Wednesday removes Mr. Bannon from the Principals Committee, restores the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and Intelligence Director, and also adds the Energy Secretary, CIA Director, and United Nations Ambassador. So that is uh, very good news. Um, we, we felt like we owed it to the audience to mention that just in case you hadn't seen it anywhere else. Um, we don't like Mr. Bannon, but we also don't like any of these other people per se. Um, it, was, it was deeply concerning that he had all of this special access, that he was essentially hijacking the process and was getting access to uh, uh, power in the National Security Council that he should not have had. So it's, um, it's, it's slightly comforting to see that he has been removed. Now, regardless of the reasons, um, that's, uh, that's a little less power for him, and we are, uh, we are glad to see it. Um, I also wanted to discuss a story, um, again, from the New York Times. Uh, this is an article by uh, Andrew Higgins from April 4th of this year. Um, and this uh, this deals with uh, with with Russia in a in a very different way. Uh, it has nothing to do with the uh, uh, with the with the Russian stories that are are seen all over the news today because of connections with uh, uh, politicians in our country. It rather brushes against secularism, uh, and so I wanted to uh, I wanted to go over this a bit. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read part of this article to you so that we can discuss it. Again, this is called uh, Russia Moves to Ban Jehovah's Witnesses as Extremists by Andrew Higgins, posted yesterday in the New York Times. Um, a dedicated pacifist who has never even held a gun, Andrea Sivik, discovered that his government considered him a dangerous extremist when he tried to change some money and a teller suddenly looked up at me with a face full of fear. His name had popped up on the Exchange Bureau's computer system along with those of members of Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and other militant groups responsible for shocking acts of violence. The only group the 43-year-old father of three has, been, has ever belonged to, however, is Jehovah's Witnesses, a Christian denomination committed to the belief that the Bible must be taken literally, particularly in its injunction, thou shalt not kill. Yet in a throwback to the days of the Soviet Union, when Jehovah's Witnesses were hounded as spies and malcontents of the KGB, the, de- the denomination is at the center of an escalating campaign by the authorities to curtail religious groups that compete with the Russian Orthodox Church and that challenged President Vladimir Putin's efforts to rally the country behind traditional and often militaristic patriotic values. The Justice Ministry, in a preliminary administrative strike last month, put the headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia, an office complex near St. Petersburg, on a list of the bodies banned in connection with the carrying out of extremist activities. Whether it stays there will depend on Russia's Supreme Court, which is scheduled to meet today to hear a request from the Justice Ministry to outlaw the religious organization and stop its more than 170,000 Russian members from from spreading, quote, extremist texts. 
Extremism, as defined by the law passed in 2002, but amended and expanded several times since, has become a catch-all charge that can be deployed against just about anybody, as it has been against some of those involved in recent anti-corruption protests in Moscow and scores of other cities. Several students who took part in demonstrations in the Siberian city of Tomsk uh, are now being investigated by a special anti-extremism unit, while Leonid Volkov, uh, the senior aide to the jailed protest leader Alexei A. Navalny, said he himself was detained last week under the extremist law. In the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, the putative extremism seems to derive mostly from the group's absolute opposition to violence, a stand that infuriated Soviet and now Russian authorities, whose legitimacy rests in large part on the celebration of martial triumphs, most notably over Nazi Germany in World War II, but also over rebels in Syria. Jehovah's Witnesses, members of a denomination founded in the United States in the 19th century and active in Russia for more than 100 years, refuse military service, do not vote, and view God as the only true leader. They shun the patriotic festivals promoted with gusto by the Kremlin, like the annual celebration of victory in 1945 and recent events to celebrate the annexation of Crimea in March of 2014. Mr. Sivik, who says he lost his job as a physical educator, uh, I'm sorry, physical education teacher because of his role as a Jehovah's Witness elder, said he voted for Mr. Putin in 2000, three years before joining the denomination. He added that while he has not voted since, nor had he supported anti-Kremlin activities of the sort that usually attract the attention of Russia's post-Soviet version of the KGB, the Federal Security Service, or FSB. I have absolutely no interest in politics, he said during a recent Jehovah's Witness Friday service in a wooden country house in Vorokabino, a snow-covered village north of Moscow. Around 100 worshipers crammed into a long, chilly room under fluorescent lights to listen to reading from the Bible, sing, and watch a video advising them to dress for worship as they would for a meeting with the president. From the Russian state's perspective, Jehovah's Witnesses are completely separate, said Geraldine Fagan, the author of Believing in Russia, Religious Policy After Communism. She added, they don't get involved in politics, but this is itself seen as a suspicious political deviation. The idea of independent and public religious activity that is completely outside the control of and also indifferent to the state sets all sorts of alarm bells ringing in the Orthodox Church and the security services, she said. This is uh, essentially a politically motivated attempt to uh, silence and indeed even expel Jehovah's Witnesses um, as a group from Russia uh, to outlaw that practice. This is basically... um, uh, persecution, uh, like it's like it's like it's 1,500 years ago in Rome or something. Um, it certainly it certainly wouldn't result in, uh, in in violence the way that things did in the first few hundred years of the Christian Church. But this is a nation deciding that a sect, a religious sect, cannot be a part of their country because of a, a political motivation and a desire to uh, uh, lessen um, uh, competition with uh, uh, Russian Orthodoxy. Um, again, with the, uh, you know, the articles that you bring out, um, I don't know though, does it, can it not lead to violence? Not even like 1500 years ago, but like world war two kind of violence. Like, let me see your papers. You're not welcome here. Let's round up all of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. If they, um, uh, if they decided to, to physically remove people, um, then, of course, I mean, as, as one can imagine, that entire process uh, can absolutely involve or lead to um, violence. Um, 
the article goes on to to interview um, a person who remembers that this happened before, uh, and and just can't believe that that you know from his perspective in today's day and age, uh, they would be they would be rejected. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses don't vote, uh, and so part of the 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 reason that this is um, easy to do from a political standpoint is that anybody involved in this in Russia uh, doesn't have to fear any kind of a backlash. These people aren't voting anyway. So by attacking them, you're not losing any votes. You're not losing any support. Then what they should, they, they, they believe uh, sympathizing, you know, sympathizers votes that they lose are negligible. Anybody that, that does vote that says, well, why should, why are you doing that to the Jehovah's Witnesses? I, I'm actually not going to vote now. Like to stand in solidarity with that would that would kind of be um, what I would what I would like to see. Um, it, it would take it would take uh, other voters who believe in uh, people being able to exercise their religion. Um, you know, in 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 just like in other countries. In, in Russia, Jehovah's Witnesses, they go door to door, they do their proselytizing. The, the sort of joke in the West is how irritating and annoying that is. We all kind of tease right. Jehovah's Witnesses for doing that. But there's nothing... But we don't nothing. suggest that they shouldn't be in the country. Right. And we don't <laughs> think that they shouldn't be allowed to proselytize. Now, right. Russia isn't a secular nation the way that we are, but I'm not talking about this uh, from a legal standpoint. This is just really negative behavior. And this is the kind of thing that secularism is in place to protect. It's not just to say people should not be religious. It's, it's as we've said so many times on this program, uh, the important thing is that everybody is allowed to practice their own religion, to decide that, that, uh, that one group has to be kicked out precisely because they're pacifists. I mean, it, 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 it would be one thing if Jehovah's Witnesses were, uh, you know, going around blowing up, you know, well, anything. Um, but they're sure. not. They're 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 peaceful by definition. Um, I, imagining that this is a threat is clearly a political one, and you're removing people's freedoms based on their religious choices, um, uh, not because they've done anything to suspend their rights. And that is uh, that is very very disturbing. Well, you know, you said, you know, it's not an illegal aspect, just in, in that it's wrong. Like you can just tell, but. Um, a lot of the things that we've talked about in these articles are, are things that are happening, you know, here in our country. And they they typically have to do with bills that are proposed or, or laws that are uh, trying to be passed. And then we encourage the people of said state to get out there and, and vote and, you know, sign petitions and do what you can. Is there not some sort of a, you know, place that we can t- contact, to, you know, like United Nations or ambassadors or something and say, hey, we – we also think, you know, that this shouldn't be happening, or is it is it just moot because they're not the same kind of countries as that, and that's just not something we get involved in. I think I think our reach is going to be pretty limited here until there's actually a human rights abuse. I don't think that the UN is going to be particularly involved. Now, I am not I am not well versed in these kinds of matters, so I'm not sure uh, how this would be classified by an organization like uh, like the UN. Um, but as far as I as far as I know, um, Russia is allowed to do this kind of thing. It's just a terrible, terrible idea. Um, it's 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 you know these are these these people are 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 easy targets. 
Um, here, another another passage from the article. Attacking Jehovah's Witnesses also sends a signal that even the mildest deviation from the norm, if proclaimed publicly and insistently, can be punished under the anti-extremism law, which was passed after Russia's second war in Chechnya and the September 11th attacks in the United States. Um, if you if you can do it if you can do it here, then you can do it with anyone. You can you can decide that any group based on their ideology, based on their religion. Um, is a is a threat, uh, and you can just decide that some people don't get to be a part of the conversation unless they conform to what the state holds up as the as the good religion. Um, this this is antithetical to to freedom, to basic liberty, to the ability for everyone to have a seat at the table. Now I understand that those aren't values that we necessarily associate with Russia. The point is not that Russia is going against Russian ideas. The point is that what Russia is doing is a bad idea in a wider sense. Yeah, it's it's not even um, like you said. Uh, go against uh, this religion uh, and uphold the state religion. E- even from a secular uh, standpoint, if it was, uh, you know, um, they treated all religions this way and said, no, you can't have a religion, and we're going to be secular. That still is wrong. That's still a forced idea upon someone. And then mm. to to say. Okay, you can't have this religion or that religion or this religion, but this is a religion that you must have. Is I I'm not sure if that's. I think that's the same. It's the same as forced secularism, forced religion, forced anything, or forced not to do anything as long as you're not hurting anybody. And this is precisely what these guys are doing is not hurting anyone. Right. Yeah, when when you decide that you can take a group like Jehovah's Witnesses, regardless of, of I would I would I would happily sit down and have an argument with uh, somebody who is a Jehovah's Witness and 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 argue um, uh, atheism and and epistemology and and all of those all of those things. Uh, that that's that that would be that would be an I engaging conversation. Come to my house every day. I'm I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm just, it's a free conversation. Yeah, that would be that, that would be great. Knock on my door. But we want them to be able to knock on the door. The, Russia is, is basically saying that Jehovah's Witnesses are terrorists when they are the opposite of terrorists. You, you can't just weaken the word like that and pretend like, uh, like, like that doesn't lessen what an actual terrorist is. You can't just throw that word around and still maintain any kind of reason to, to take your word for it when you say we have to protect ourselves against terrorism. If you're going to label uh, – nice Christian pacifists who are handing out pamphlets in Russia as terrorists, then anyone is a terrorist. And it clearly is a political term uh, and not one that you're applying to people that would use terrorism uh, to, uh, to further a religious or political goal. Well, that is, uh, that is what is happening in, uh, in Russia. We're going to keep an eye on that. They said that they were going to have a, a decision from the courts today. I haven't seen anything on that yet. That doesn't mean that it's just not out there and has avoided my eyes. Um, and if anything uh, really interesting happens, we will, uh, we will try to follow up uh, on future episodes. Um, before we jump into um, the, uh, the, the first topic of the night, um, Scott, do you want to you want to give us a bit of an update on where we're at with Truth Pursuit for the week? Yeah, so uh, first was cover the last couple of weeks because we we got into a, a heavy topic with thermodynamics um, a couple weeks ago, right on the tail end of the, the heavier topic of the age of the Earth. Now, I say heavy 
you know, they were like deep discussion, especially the thermodynamics discussion. If you're not in that field of science, it's really difficult to wrap your mind around some of the ways the language goes, especially. But we decided to give it a couple of weeks and um, kind of change the format of the truth, truth pursuit here to get some some interaction. And, uh, you know, while we were saying deep, deep topics and and hard to wrap your mind around, the votes were coming in on the polls, not at all difficult to grasp. A hundred percent, you know, were, were correct on the age of the earth and a hundred percent were correct that thermodynamics does nothing to prove the existence of a God. Um, and as I was typing these things, as I was putting these polls out, like uh, the age of the earth is under 10,000 years or over 4 billion years, I felt silly. Uh, I was like, uh, it felt like I was preparing a questionnaire for a sixth grader. Uh, there should have been little cartoon drawings of dinosaurs next to it. It just, <laughs> it just felt silly. And at the same time that it felt silly, I was like, why is it that these are prevalent things that we're, we're coming up against? Why is it that something that seems, uh, you know, a sixth grader could answer, um, we're, we're wrestling with adults about and um, uh, that brought up kind of the idea of it's got to be something other than intelligence. It's not, it's not people's intelligence. People are obviously smarter than, than, than what's happening here. So what is really behind it? And, um, you know, we're going to get into a little bit of that later on tonight. But, but for the next uh, week's Truth Pursuit, we're going to do burden of proof. Um, on some of these, you know, wacky things that people believe, but um, just the idea of burden of proof. And, and we usually talk about it a little bit and, and we can, but we're going to be, as you know, Corey, talking about burden of proof and, and other things in the rest of uh, the first part of tonight's show. So I figure um, if you want to interact about burden of proof, listen into the rest of the show and, and then, um, you know, I'll get some polls out there and we'll, we'll discuss it more in depth, but but it's coming up tonight for sure. Yeah, yeah. Burden of proof is going to play uh, uh, quite a bit into uh, into skepticism, which is the subject of uh, of the first, uh, well, uh, of the next uh, 35, 40 minutes of the of the program. And again, uh, for those listening, we have uh, our, our our special guest, uh, Mikey, will be joining us uh, sometime near the top of the second hour in order to have our discussion about inculcation. We encourage everybody to stay tuned for that. It's going to be a very, very good discussion. And if you want to call in and ask questions, um, you can certainly do that. Uh, that's going to be at 646 646- Five six four nine five five one. The discussion is is we're only going to have uh, an hour, a little less, in order to discuss things um, with him. And so we are planning on doing a uh, a special Q and A afterwards that you'll be able to watch on Periscope. Uh, that's uh, at ISM Podcast underscore. Uh, we'll probably start that 15 minutes or so after the end of this broadcast so that uh, everybody can can engage there and ask questions uh, across the Periscope platform. Uh, we can continue discussion in uh, in that format. But if anybody wants to talk live on the show, you can certainly do that, 646-564-9551. Let's jump into skepticism. Um, this is one of my favorite topics, uh, and it's, 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 it's very it's, – it's sort of an important – fundamental part of, of dealing with epistemology, uh, of dealing with the conversation that we have about atheism or against religion. Um, some of these, some of these concepts 
uh, come up a, again and again. Um, let's start with, with just a, a definition um, of skepticism, just like uh, the encyclopedic definition. Skepticism is generally any questioning attitude or doubt towards one or more items of putative knowledge or belief. It is often directed at domains such as uh, morality, morals, skepticism, religion, skepticism about the existence of God, or knowledge, skepticism about the possibility of knowledge or of certainty. Formally, skepticism as a topic occurs in context of philosophy, particularly epistemology, although it can be applied to any topic such as politics, religion, and pseudoscience. Without skepticism, you have to accept whatever story is given to you. Why use it? What does it do? What do we have without it? What can be proven versus disproven? What needs to happen with extraordinary claims? Can skepticism ever be a bad thing? Okay. So we've got quite a bit to unpack. Um, we, we encourage people to be generally more skeptical. Uh, there are a lot of uh, extraordinary claims that can be made uh, that often are made, especially when we're talking about religion. And these, these ideas need to be uh, looked at through skeptical eyes. When somebody tells you that something that otherwise you would think is impossible uh, is true because it's backed up by ancient doctrine, um, then it's important to establish what exactly would be your bar of evidence, what would convince you that something is true. We've talked about this before, um, uh, an extraordinary claim requiring extraordinary evidence. If, if, if we say that, that if I say that I'm sitting down, you can choose to believe me or not, but you know that there are such things as chairs and such things as people, and you can deduce fairly accurately that I am a person, given that I'm talking to you right now, uh, it's not unreasonable to believe that I am sitting in a chair. If I said I was sitting in a floating chair, that becomes a little more extraordinary because few of us have ever seen a floating chair. So at that point, you would want some more evidence for what I'm saying. You would be skeptical of the claim that I am making. Um, this, this comes in quite predominantly when we talk about um, atheism, the, the lack of belief, um, in, in, in God claims or of the things that are associated with God claims, the, the claim that there is a place called heaven, that there is an eternal pit of suffering called hell, that these are actual places uh, that exist. Um, we, are, we are, as atheists, we are skeptical of these claims. Um, quickly, we end up having to establish where that burden of proof is. Somebody comes along and they say, um, there is a guy who created everything and his name is God. And he gave us a book to let us know what he wants from us. And we have to obey what he has to say because he is God. And if we disobey what God does, we will be damned to hell. If we obey God, then we can make it into heaven. Okay. That's a whole bunch of extraordinary claims altogether. What we want to do is we want to establish some skepticism. We want to say, wait a minute. So you're suggesting there's a, there's a person in God. Where is this? Where is this person? Where's this entity? Well, he kind of exists, you know, in another plane. He, he's, he's, uh, he, you can't comprehend him using the, the typical methods, uh, but he exists. He's out there. Okay. So this person is making a claim, which means that the burden of proof rests with them to prove that claim. A burden of proof is the obligation of a party in a dispute to provide sufficient warrant for their position. 
So if I if, if somebody says I believe in God and I say I don't believe in God, then they if they want me to believe them, if they want to convince me, they are the person making a claim. So the burden of proof lies with them to demonstrate that God actually exists. You know, I was thinking, um, and it, I, I just thought of this as you were talking. There's a, a Dark Matter 2525 video, and um, it's just on the idea of, of skeptical thinking or, or burden of proof. Not exactly burden of proof, but the, the lack of evidence for a God and, and how people readily accept the God's existence, but wouldn't do that in, in other aspects of their life. And I, I encourage you to go check out, you know, all of his videos. And if you can find, I can't remember the name of this right now, this certain video, but it's a woman going into a, a real estate agency um, to buy a house. And, and she's been saving up her all her life and she's ready to make the purchase, but she wants to go look at some houses and, and buy one. And the guy says, no, actually I have a mansion for you. It's brilliant. You'll love it. And she's like, well, I can't really afford a mansion. I don't, I, I only have like a hundred thousand dollars. And he's like, no, it's co- that's exactly how much it costs. A hundred thousand dollars. So here you go. Here's the paperwork sign. And I'll give you the mansion. And she's like, that sounds a little too good to be true. Can I go see the mansion? You know, make sure that it's like, okay, not trashed or actually is a mansion or whatever. Uh, I, I worked my whole life for this money and I don't want to just dump it on something I haven't seen. And he's like, no, trust me, it's a great mansion. You're going to love it. Just sign right here. And, you know, ultimately she refuses. No, I'm not going to buy a house unseen that you claim is everything I want in a house. Give you all the money that I've saved up for this. I'm not going to do it. And then she walks out and is approached by a theist who tells her to give up everything about herself to devote herself to a religion because at the end of it, she'll get this heaven. And she says, do I get to go see the heaven? And no. And do I get to see the guy who's making the claim that there is this heaven? No. Well then you got it. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) There's this disconnect made in the most important aspect of, of life of determining what is reality in, in what people are willing to accept as evidence or proof of this thing, and they will never accept that as evidence or proof of something else in, in the rest of their daily activities. When, when, when we – I've had this. I'm sure you have too. It happens constantly where you, you say, I'm an atheist, and somebody's response who believes in God says, you can't prove that God doesn't exist. Well, that's true, but that has nothing to do with atheism. If somebody makes a claim, we don't have to disprove it in order to not believe in it. If I say I can fly, take my word for it, you are under no obligation to disprove it in order to not believe it. I have to prove it because I've made the claim. Um, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and when we employ... Uh, Hitchens razor, um, we see assertions made without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. If you want me to believe in something, but you're unwilling or incapable of proving it, then I am under no obligation to believe you. When we say that we are atheists, we are not saying we believe that God does not exist. 
We are saying that we don't believe in God because there is no good evidence. We are atheists. Uh, uh, we have the same position about um, uh, fairies and unicorns and Santa Claus and all these things. We can't prove that fairies don't exist, but we don't believe in them. There's no, there's no good reason to believe in them. It's not a matter of disproving it, and until you've disproved it, you better believe something. That's not how this works. We, believe, we want to believe in things that are true, and we believe in things once they have been demonstrated or proven, not we believe in everything until it's been disproven. That's not a, that's not a reliable way to reach truth. To that point, um, we wanted to uh, describe what is known as Russell's teapot. Uh, Bertrand Russell uh, uh, wrote this. Um, in 1952 for a commissioned but never published um, uh, article for Illustrated Magazine. Um, He wrote, many Orthodox people speak as though it were the business of skeptics to disprove received dogmas rather than of dogmatists to prove them. This is, of course, a mistake. If I were to suggest that between the Earth and Mars, there is a China teapot revolving around the sun in an elliptical orbit, Nobody would be able to disprove my assertion, provided I were careful to add that the teapot is too small to be revealed even by our most powerful telescopes. But if I were to go on to say that since my assertion cannot be disproved, it is, in, it is an, intoler, an intolerable presumption on the part of human reason to doubt it, I should rightly be thought to be talking nonsense. If, however, the existence of such a teapot were affirmed in ancient books, taught as the sacred truth every Sunday, and instilled into the minds of children at school, hesitating to believe in its existence would become a mark of eccentricity and entitle the doubter to the attentions of the psychiatrist in an enlightened age or of the inquisitor in an earlier time. We don't have to disprove the teapot floating somewhere in outer space between Mars and Earth in order to claim that we don't believe in it. We also don't need to be agnostic about it. Technically, we are, since we can't know. And agnosticism is simply the inability to know something. But we don't have to make sure that we qualify our disbelief by insisting that we are agnostic about the teapot. It is completely reasonable to say we don't believe that the teapot exists. It's an extraordinary claim backed up by nothing. In 1958, he elaborated on the analogy. He said, I ought to call myself an agnostic, but for all practical purposes, I am an atheist. I do not think the existence of the Christian God any more probable than the existence of the gods of Olympus or Valhalla. To take another illustration, nobody can prove that there is not between the Earth and Mars a China teapot revolving in an elliptical orbit, but nobody thinks this sufficiently likely to be taken into account in practice. I think the Christian God just as, inla- uh, just as unlikely. I, I really like that uh, distinction that he made in there. Um, I'm not wanted to go back and see if it was in the uh, the first one. Um, yeah, China teapot. He says it in both of them, but uh, where he said he didn't take the existence of the Christian God any more probable than the existence of the gods of Olympus or Valhalla or whatever. Uh, to say there's a, a teapot revolving in the elliptical orbit around the sun would be one thing that's saying that there is a God. But to say it's a China teapot is to say that's the Christian God or the Islam God, a very specific God, because there's several different kinds of teapots. It's brilliant, and I didn't even realize that was part of the uh, argument. Precisely. Precisely said. Yeah, this is, um, this is, this is an example of, of people insisting that they, 
that they know things that they cannot know and insisting that you need to believe in them too just because they say so. Not only are you insisting that there must be a teapot, but you know what kind. Not only are you saying that there is a God, but that it's your specific brand of God. You know, you, you insist that you know too much when you make claims that there is a God. Um, oftentimes, because the burden of proof can't be met when we're dealing with this kind of an argument, uh, an, uh, an empirical argument, um, you have to then rely on faith. At that point, when I say, well, but, but you can't prove that the teapot is there, well, you have to have faith that the teapot is there. That's not that faith can very easily lead to believing in things that aren't true. What would be, what would uh, be the, the, the metric in determining faith being used to believe in the Loch Ness Monster or that aliens landed in Roswell or that God exists versus faith in things that actually turn out to be true? It's not reliable as well. This, this right here, what you're saying, leads me to, to tell you something. I was going to tell you in private, uh, but I, uh, this is as good as place as any is. That I don't think that I'm going to call myself an, you know, an atheist anymore. Really? Yeah. Well, I guess that's not exactly true. I'll probably still be classified as an atheist and then could say, sure, I am an atheist on top of this. But I'm thinking maybe more epistivist. An epistivist, somebody who does not use faith to know things. I think maybe that should be my first definition. I've been wrestling with it for the last couple of days, and I was going to talk to you about that position because I'm not exactly familiar with it. But um, I, you were I talking used to, about faith and those all kinds of things right now. I figured this is as good as time as any to bring it up. Yeah, I um, I, I, I use the term epistivist. I think it's a fantastic word. It's not uh, it's not as commonly known. Um, a lot of people, when you say I'm an epistivist, they have to say, well, what? What does that mean? Uh, which is fine. It's it's good to get right. a, a nice handy word like that out there. Um, um, it reminds me of when you did your last scope. Uh, there was somebody in there who was saying you use faith every day, and you were like, "No, I'm an epistivist. I don't I don't use faith as a as a means to 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 know things." And they said you use faith every time you sit down. Uh, you have faith that the chair isn't going to break. No, 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 right. no, no. You could yeah. not be more wrong. When, when you sit down, you have a trend to rely on. You've sat in that chair uh, hundreds of times. We know what chairs do. Their, their job is to hold somebody up. We're not employing right. faith to think that the chair hold this. We are noticing that that is a chair and that it has a job, and we are expecting that it will do its job. We have a trend that chairs hold people's well, weight. And that's, that's evidenced by us when, when we're um... – at somebody's house and they say, Oh, here, you, you, you know, you can sit in that chair and you look and the chair looks like, like a kid's chair, like a plastic lawn chair. You, you kind of test, test it as you're sitting in going to sit into it. You like, you know, you put your hands on it and you see if it's sturdy and you're like, you might even ask, well, will this thing hold me? Is this, you know, is this, this chair doesn't look, you don't just immediately go, well, it's a chair. I can totally sit in it. You make some <laughs> right. quick, assessments in your mind based on your experiences with chairs in, in the past. Right. In order to have faith about sitting in a chair, you would have to not have a trend to rely on. Because if you've ever seen a chair before, if you've ever sat in a chair, if you've got any kind of a trend with chairs, then you are not employing faith when you sit in one. In fact, quite the opposite is true. If you sit, if you sit in a chair a hundred times, 
And on the 101st time, you glance at the chair, and there is nothing different about it. It doesn't appear to be damaged. Nothing different about the situation. Nothing, nothing about the variables has changed. It would require faith for you to think that it will break this time. Right. Uh, based off of no evidence other than assumingly someone told you that it's going to. Right. And, and to would, be more, you, you know, the, the instance that you're bringing up in my scope was my chair. I use faith to sit in the chair I'm sitting in right now. And there's more of a relationship with, with, that I have with this chair because I purchased this chair and then I then moved it into my house. So I, you know, I carried it and I physically manipulated it and I know about its sturdiness. So we're getting even more and more specific knowledge that I have about this chair, getting further and further and further away from anything resembling faith when I go to sit in it. Right. Right. It would, it would actually be impossible for you to employ faith before sitting in a chair. Uh, if you thought that it was going to hold you, if you've sat in it before uh, more than once, you have a trend to rely upon. Faith cannot occur at that point. Um, so yeah, epistivist is a, uh, is, is an apt and useful uh, title. Of course, epistivism is, is not using faith to know anything. Atheism specifically talks about the God position. Right, exactly. Um, so it's two areas it can be. So that, that's the, 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 the Russell Teapot we wanted to discuss because it deals with uh, the difference between atheism and agnosticism, where we, we yes, we technically are agnostic about the teapot because we don't know, we can't know whether it exists. But given the likelihood, given the extraordinary nature of the claim, given that there is nothing to support the claim, we don't need to be agnostic about everything. Technically, we are agnostic atheists. If you, if you force us all the way down into, but you can't know that God doesn't exist, well, yes, that's true. And so I'm agnostic about whether or not there actually is a God. But I lack belief that there is one, therefore I am an atheist. I'm not on the fence about it. I'm not, I'm not thinking, well, uh, until the data is in, I'm going, to, I'm going to withhold judgment. I am agnostic about whether or not God exists because I can't disprove him. He's never been disproven. Um, but I, I, I also lack belief. The, the way that I, uh, I've explained this before is – um, insisting that somebody use the term agnostic instead of atheist is a bit like saying that um, I have $5 and Scott has $900,000 and therefore we are equally not millionaires. No, <laughs> he is a lot closer to being a millionaire than I am. Uh, that's the same as it is with belief in God. I, I am at the, I'm at the 900,000 mark. I, am, I, I, have, right. I have no reason um, so to accept this. It's not that I, I am... Yeah, I've addressed this a couple of times. I'm a six on the Dawkins scale. Hmm. Right. A pure agnostic is four. I, 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 50-50. I don't know either way. Just because there are two options doesn't mean that they are 50-50 equally likely. I am technically an agnostic atheist, but I don't feel the need to qualify the statement atheist because regardless of how agnostic I am about the empiricism of the claim, I don't believe that it exists that's that's the that's the first half of of applying skepticism to an argument an extraordinary claim being rejected because it lacks empirical evidence but there is another type of argument uh that we want to discuss um and that is uh that is that is let's give the example of eric the god-eating penguin oh yes let's i love this guy Okay, Eric the God-eating penguin. Since Eric is God is a God-eating 
uh, penguin by definition, he has no choice but to eat God. So, if God exists, he automatically ceases to exist as a result of being eaten, unless you can prove that Eric doesn't exist. Uh, then God doesn't exist. Even if you can prove that Eric doesn't exist, the same proof will also be applicable to God. So there are only two possibilities. Either you can prove that Eric doesn't exist, or you can't. In both cases, it logically follows that God doesn't exist. It's the same metric that you can use to prove that Eric, the God-eating penguin, doesn't exist can be applied to God. Precisely. Uh, I believe in Eric, the God-eating penguin. Somebody else doesn't. Well, prove that God's Eric, the God-eating penguin, doesn't exist. You can see how ridiculous this is. You can see immediately how it falls apart. It is not on the person who doubts the existence of Eric to prove that Eric doesn't exist. I have said that Eric does exist. The burden of proof lies with me. And anybody who hears the claim should be skeptical of it until they have good reason to believe that there are such things as God-eating penguins, and one of them is named Eric. This is an argument uh, uh, that could be referred to as ontological in nature. It plays on the rejection of, of the burden of proof by the claimant and supposes something equally unfalsifiable to show how the inability to disprove something does not make it true. No one should accept that Eric exists because there is no evidence that Eric exists. Atheists have used Eric as a way to demonstrate how the burden of proof fallacy fails and why the argument of disproof is indefensible. Ontological arguments tend to exist as a way to circumnavigate the burden of proof. Since God has failed as a scientific hypothesis and meets zero empirical standards, advanced theological arguments rely on ontological concepts because they hold no traditional burden of proof. And in fact, some of them are intended to demonstrate that there is necessarily no evidence for God or gods. Ontological arguments are... Um, are, 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 are of interest to me. They, they pop up now and again, um, especially with some of the more advanced uh, apologists that, that you may come into if you are having a discussion uh, from an atheistic position. Um, ontology is the philosophical study of the nature of being, becoming, existence, or reality, as well as the basic categories of being and their relations. Traditionally listed as a part of the major branch of philosophy known as metaphysics, ontology often deals with questions concerning what entities exist or may be said to exist and how such entities may be grouped related within a hierarchy and subdivided according to similarities and differences. Although ontology as a philosophical enterprise is highly hypothetical, it also has practical applications in information science and technology, such as ontology engineering. Uh, the principal questions of ontology include what can be said to exist? What is a thing? Into what categories, if any, can we sort existing things? What are the meanings of beings? What are the various modes of being of entities? Um, the first ontological argument in the Western Christian tradition was proposed by Anselm of Canterbury in 1078, um, uh, Scott, give us, uh, give us, give us sort of like the, the modern version of this argument. Okay. So his argument starts, let us define God as the most powerful, infinite thing imaginable. Let us imagine that God exists only in the understanding of the mind. That's the atheist view. 
We can conceive of God, and while we can't prove him empirically, we can prove him ontologically using our understanding of the universe. Given our definition of God, beings with more power than, than God must exist in understanding alone, not in reality. But these beings can't be conceived to exist in reality. We can conceive of beings more powerful than God existing in reality, even if we do not believe they actually do. Things that actually exist have more power than things that are only conceived. Therefore, to be the most powerful thing conceivable, God must exist in reality as well as in understanding. That is – I hope everybody followed that. That is, that is a, a great example of an ontological argument. For something to be maximally X – it must exist in reality, not just in the imagination. This is this is like this is like uh, epistemological trolling. Uh, ontological arguments really are are strange little critters, um, but 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 there you have it. Um, we have just used ontology to prove God. Of course, since we have employed no empirical evidence to arrive at this. Skeptics may resist and say that this is insufficient to hold the conclusion as true. They are not yet convinced. And this is where Eric the God-Eating Penguin came from, to demonstrate that ontological arguments for the existence of God are just as easily manipulated to disprove God. Let's bring Eric back into the mix for part two, as posited by Reddit user Geophagus. Imagine the greatest possible God-Eating Penguin. A penguin that existed and had eaten a god would be greater than a non-existent one that had eaten no god. Therefore, a god-eating penguin that has eaten a god must exist. That said, a god-eating penguin who has eaten entire pantheons of god would be even greater. Therefore, all gods have existed and Eric has eaten them all. Brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> that truly is brilliant. Um, I mean – this is this is at, at the at the heart of, of ontological arguing. You can you can just just change the, the, the Eric thing and have him work uh, from an ontological standpoint as well. After all, if you can imagine that he exists and he would be uh, uh, necessarily more powerful than God's, and he must exist if God's exist. Um, um, this I I just wanted to point something out. Yesterday I was uh, doing some research into Anselm's. Uh, ontological argument, and there was this uh, the the main core of his argument, where um, if God is is most powerful, this is the most powerful thing you can conceive, and existence is uh, having more power than you know, existence is better than non-existence. Then God has that, you know, God definitely exists because he's the most powerful. But by what metric are they are they saying that existing is better than non-existing because uh that that's not um you know a uh an absolute truth that existing is better than non-existing if your existence say uh from the time you're born uh, you have some sort of an ailment that is uh causes you to be in excruciating pain all day every day then um non-existence is surely better than existence in that case. And right. so there's no metric saying that always constantly in every scenario existing is better than non-existence. 
So the thing falls apart right there. Yeah, the only thing that this can demonstrate is that an existing uh, being would have more power than one yeah, that exists power. in the imagination yeah. alone. Because something that exists in the imagination alone can't influence the world, uh, can't influence reality. Um, uh, for anybody who's, who's not familiar with ontological arguments, uh, especially the, uh, the atheists out there who are maybe just kind of getting interested in this conversation, who are just kind of starting out, you, you, if you go deep enough, you will eventually run into this. You will eventually end up uh, coming up against somebody who employs ontological arguments. So we want to uh, explain uh, one of the more common ones used today. The apologist William Lane Craig is famous for performing versions of the Kalam cosmological argument in debate. Um, and here is his uh, 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 syllogism. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the conclusion is the universe has a cause. Okay. Uh, things, that, uh, things that begin to exist have causes. And if the universe began to exist, it has a cause. Um, regardless of whether or not you are a uh, scientist or a um, uh, somebody who believes that 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 guy, if, whether or not you believe in in the Big Bang or or if you believe in in God did it, either way, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, we can agree based on this uh, syllogism that the universe had a cause. From the conclusion of the initial syllogism, uh, Craig appends a further premise and conclusion based upon ontological analysis of the properties of the cause. The universe has a cause. If the universe has a cause, then an uncaused personal creator of the universe exists. Who says the universe is beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful. Therefore, an uncaused personal creator of the universe exists, who stands the universe as beginless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful. Referring to the implications of classical theism that follow from this argument, Craig writes, transcending the entire universe, there exists a cause which brought the universe into beginning, or whole universe was caused to exist by something beyond it and greater than it. For it is no secret that one of the most important conceptions of what theists mean by God is creator of heaven and earth. It is obvious that Craig reaches too far in declaring that he can know anything about this prime cause of the universe, especially that it is a personal creator. It would indeed be reasonable to conclude that if the universe was designed, it was designed by a being that is beginningless, material, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful in relation to the constructs of these ideas based on an interior understanding of the laws of the universe. Though we could certainly not say these properties are required in relation to whatever reality this being occupies, given that it is necessarily undefined. I also feel that the property changeless is arbitrary, but I digress. We need not go this far as we do not accept these premise that the universe was necessarily designed. Whatever existed before the Big Bang remains a mystery, and an intelligent creator is but one hypothesis. 
The point, of course, is simply to provide the audience with a basic understanding of ontological arguments as a way to circumnavigate traditional burdens. Once again, we find that the ontological argument screams of special pleading. All other claims hold a consistent uh, burden of proof, but the God claim necessarily falls outside of empiricism. Therefore, he cannot be proved in any traditional sense, but fear not. When we apply ontological reasoning to God and only God, everything works out just fine. This is stupid. Why would ontological arguments only work for God? Why accept them for Yahweh or Allah or pantheistic notion or a deistic concept of the prime mover, but not for Eric, the God-eating penguin? Ontological, ontological arguments aren't tethered to much. They seem ironclad until we show how ontological reasoning can be applied just as well in reverse. Just as well in reverse. So the reverse this is, what, is also true. Right. There's no reason why we can't just take this a step further. We have, we have at this point, um, uh, ontologically proven that God exists. William Lynn Craig does it every time he uses the ontological argument. He uses ontology to prove the existence of God. Well, let's see what happens if we take this in a slightly different direction. Let's start with the assumption that God is the supreme creator of the universe. The universe is the most maximal thing we can define. All things except for God are contained within the universe. That is to say, nothing created is more impressive than the universe, since all other impressive creations are included within God's creation. Right? That which is created can be measured for impressiveness by the result of a simple inverse proportion. Quality of creation against handicap of creator. Let us take as example a 10-page short story that includes a beginning, middle, and end, yet lacks an interesting protagonist or any interesting dialogue. If written by a two-year-old, the creation increases in impressiveness because of the inherent ability of two-year-olds. If written by William Shakespeare, it decreases in impressiveness because, well, it's William Shakespeare. He wrote Hamlet. By comparison to his handicap, these 10 pages would be drivel. But compared to the toddler's handicap, these pages are stunningly remarkable. Let us apply this concept to the most impressive creation ever, the universe. What is the quality of the universe? Infinite. Nothing can be more impressive as a creation. Therefore, its creator must have an infinite handicap. Nothing is a bigger handicap than non-existence. Therefore, God must not exist. This argument is also stupid. In fact, it's really, really stupid, perhaps maximally stupid. Friends don't let friends use ontological reasoning as a definitive way to determine truth. It's stupid, <laughs> but I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it a lot. <laughs> we've, we've proven that God existed, and then using the same type of argument, we have proven that God does not exist. Oh, no, wait, never mind. We're, we're, we're nowhere with this. This is, this is when you decide that you're going to prove something by rejecting every methodology we use to prove things, you can just prove anything. It is, it is, it is completely dumb. So regardless of the ontological nature of an argument, skepticism still leads us to say, I'm not willing to accept this one thing based on your strange roundabout reasoning where you move the goalposts, where you suggest that God can't be defined the way that we would define anything else. God can't be proven the way that we would prove anything else, but we're still going to do it. (sighs) 
Okay. Hopefully that all made sense. That was that was uh, fairly dense. Um, and if you if you have questions about about what we are doing there, uh, I'm sure that we will be available um, on on Periscopes. We'll be doing an after show here if you guys wanna wanna get get a little clarification on uh, precisely what we're what we're trying to say here. Um, and you can also of course listen to the replay. All of our shows are on iTunes. Um, some of them are up on YouTube. We're uploading those as time passes, uh, and all of them remain on Blog Talk Radio as well. Plus, Young Athlon 399 hosts them for us on Periscope. So if you follow ISM Podcast underscore on Periscope, you can listen to them there as well. Um, but with that, we have reached our second hour, and we have been uh, joined by our uh, by our uh, a special guest for the um for the evening mikey was formerly an active member with the mormon church uh, for many years uh, but he is no longer associated uh with it um this was uh this was a a, a major part of his life i think that uh, that uh, i'll let him use whatever labels he would want to apply to himself now um but um i think that uh i think that his story is one of great interest it's one that i think everybody can gain something from and he has been gracious enough to accept our invitation to be on the show this evening mikey how are you doing nice to talk to you you as well can can you hear Likewise, me okay well, i can good. yeah you sound great um good. you sound now, great too fantastic this is amazing <laughs> Um, you were you were a member of the uh, of the of the Mormon Church for 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 how long, Mikey? Quite a, quite a few years, if, if memory serves. Yeah, uh, decades actually. For yeah, I was a member for decades. I was a member since I was a teenager. Okay. Um, so yeah, and I'm no longer a teenager. <laughs> no, none of us are. Uh, I was none just of gonna, yeah, I was just going to say. Uh, We'll leave alone how old you actually are. <laughs> yeah, none of us. None of us no, no, I did. I, I wasn't just. I didn't just, you know, get baptized so that I, I, I sort of called myself a Mormon. Um, no, I went the whole nine yards. I uh, actually served a full time mission. I, I went. I was one of those guys on the bicycles that you see with the white shirts and the black uh, tags on their pocket, mm-hmm. going door to door and telling you about. Uh, Jesus and Joseph Smith, and I—I um, I was a temple-going Mormon. I was—I uh, was uh, an elder. I was an elders quorum president. I was a high priest. I was in a high priest uh, group presidency. I was in a bishopric. So I mean, I was a not just a by name Mormon. I was—I was a very, very active Mormon. Um, Very engaged. There was this uh, this term that I had heard before. Uh, you were not a Jack Mormon, is that right? Was not, what is a, I was, was a Jack, a Mormon. Jack Mormon. By any stretch of the imagination, uh, that's a kind of a der- derogatory term that kind of Mormons give Mormons that are just sort of half in and half out. Maybe show up sometimes, keep their names sort of on the books, but don't really participate a lot. So there was a guy yeah. Jack that apparently Mormons didn't like. I, I I don't I don't know where that term I'd have to you know dig into the ideology of that particular term and I don't I don't know where that came. But safe to say you were not one of those. I wasn't. 
I wasn't. I was, uh, yeah, I was, I went, I was full bore. I was, yep. That, if I was, was and, and it wasn't raised that way either. It wasn't raised to be. So I was somebody who joined the Mormon church on purpose and uh, actually was brought into that, what I call a cult now. Um, of course, nobody who's in a cult sees it as a cult. Everyone outside, everyone kind of outside of <laughs> everyone outside of Mormonism sort of kind of looks at it and says, "Yeah, that's kind of like a cult," <laughs> but nobody inside does. But, I've, uh, I've yeah. noticed this. I've I've had conversations with Christians, and uh, if Mormonism comes up, it's so dismissive. Oh, they, that, that's a cult. That's a cult. They're they're not actually Christians. They, what what they believe in doesn't matter. And it, it's always struck me as so odd that that people think that their faith makes so much sense. Their doctrine is the real one. Their God is, right. the, is the real guy. Everybody else is faking it. Everyone else is not only faking it, but they're just fooling people and, and somehow trapping people. But mine isn't. So, you know, ask Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. And ask Jehovah's Witnesses and the Moonies are a cult. And ask the Moonies and the Mormons are a cult. I mean, <laughs> everyone else is in a cult. I'm not, you know. You, 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 you said – I'm, I'm sorry, you said that you weren't raised that way, so how did the journey into Mormonism begin for you? Okay, here we go. <laughs> here we go. So so I'm this 14-year-old kid, and I'm, uh, I'm you know, kind of this, uh, this, this nerdy kid before nerdy was popular, you know, before it was okay to be a nerd. I'm carrying books around everywhere I go, and stopping and studying anthills and you know uh i'm i'm lonely it's my family there were issues going on there i had reasons to be lonely but uh i really thought that it was that that i what i was missing was god and i had some friends who had religions and my mother went to church although she didn't uh impress that on her kids but she went and so I thought maybe that's what I was missing because I just wasn't feeling right. I, did, I wasn't smart enough to know that, no, I was kind of missing friends and family. <laughs> but uh, so I started going. I, I, I made this plan that I would go to church with all my different friends that I knew went to different churches, that I would keep going until I went to one that I liked. If I didn't like it, there was no sense trying to learn more about it. But once I went to one I liked, I thought I, I would just – I would go back and learn some more and, and see if it was a church that I could belong to because that's where I thought you found God. And I went to a lot of different churches and <laughs> asked a lot of my friends and, and sort of put some of them out. A lot of them were kind of put out that they had to actually maybe go to church that Sunday or I don't know what. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, I guess if if, if we have to go to church – you can come with me. <laughs> it's kind of a reaction I would get sometimes. Uh, until I asked my Mormon friend, and then his reaction was way different. It was like, uh, can you? Are you kidding? I'm sorry. I didn't ask you, which, you know, was kind of a nice change. Somebody was actually pleased that I would think I would, you know, want to go with them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got a warm welcome when I was there. People talked to me, and uh, that's – and the, the missionaries were – were introduced to me at that point, and that's when it all started to kind of go downhill. Ooh, that's, ominous. Yeah. 
Yeah, I did. I didn't know if uh, that that part of it made sense so far, as far as how I kind of got interested in any church. But that's that's kind of that. That's sort of chapter one or whatever. Sure, I, I sort of uh, I sort of like the approach. The approach that uh, it, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you had an interest in religion. Um, you were sort of looking for something bigger, and it seemed like religion was the was the answer to that. Um, and and so I, I kind of like the uh, the idea of well, I'll just I'll just sort of try them all and see uh, see what I like. That's kind of a it's kind of a you know a, a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought I would do. Yep. And and again, I want to stress uh, I I don't anymore think that I was missing God. I have a, a bigger picture of things to really kind of see that I was a lonely kid. You know, I was sure. missing people connections. Yeah. And so when yep. you were when you were looking for uh, a potential religion, you were looking more for what would you say, like a like a sense of community rather than a spiritual connection. See, I I didn't realize it at the time, but yes, I was lonely, and I was just looking to fill that kind of void. But I misidentified it as, oh, I must not have a relationship with God, and that must be really important. Uh, you know, you always think your family is normal. <laughs> It's, it's sure. the only family that you grow up in. So you look around and you go, oh, okay, well, this so is... So you're, you're, you're lonely, and it sounds like you're kind of attributing that to being nerdy before being nerdy was cool. Um, uh, and you said your, your, your mother went to church, but she didn't really force that on you guys. Did you see right. anything with, with her, like going to church, that made you think, well, uh, she had what you were missing? You, you you attribute now to loneliness, but at the time you thought it was a relationship with God. Did you see her having this relationship with God? Like, did she perhaps share that with other people and you saw her interacting and, and this is where you were drawn to it? What was it that, that made you determine God is what I'm missing? Boy, that's a great question. I'm trying to kind of put myself back in that position to where I, I made that sort of attribution, and I can't tell you can't tell you what what told me that or gave me that idea that it was God that I was missing I you know maybe someday something will occur to me but it, to, to this time maybe I it's just, just like floating around in the zeitgeist I don't know I just don't I don't recall I don't have any I kind of can't can I connect to that other than I do know that I was I was lonely and I was looking for something and I thought that something that I was missing was God but uh Okay. Why? Again, like I said, I think I, my, my friends had different churches that they went to, and um, you know, my mom went to church, and so I thought, well, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe that's what I'm missing. Do you remember your first notion of God? The first time that the idea that there could be uh, something like the concept of God that that could exist. Do you remember uh, any 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 early occurrence that that went there could be something more? Um, you know. That first meeting with the missionaries is my first kind of conscious thing. I, my, my mother was kind of like careful not to impose her beliefs on on us kids, so she didn't do a lot of talking about God to us at all. But she probably did a little bit. Her mother was quite religious, um, and just really insisted on church attendance and things. But, uh, but I think. That was a little bit of a turnoff to my mother, and so she just decided to do it a different way with us. So my thought is that first meeting with the missionaries was my first uh, conscious knowledge of sort of being being given the concept of God. 
I'm curious if you um, ended up in this exploratory phase, if you were involved at all, if you if you were able to have a look at anything outside of uh, various Christian adjacent denominations, if you if you looked at Islam or anything that that wasn't Abrahamic. Um, you know, I did have a Jewish friend growing up. Um, I didn't ever get the sense that he was very interested in Judaism. And so in a sense, I kind of didn't feel like I really had a resource there to kind of turn to, to kind of learn about that. It might've been further down on my list. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so I went, I went to the Mormon church with my friend that one week, the following week, he and his family were out of town. So that, that's when I went to the Catholic church was the week after that, which I found interesting. They still were giving the mass in Latin at that time. And so I was asked my friend, I'd say, what, what do you say? And my friend would just shush me, which I took as, I don't know. <laughs> and in fact, as I looked around, I kind of thought, you know, a lot of these people probably don't know what he's saying, but they sure are full of faith. I really felt the faith of the people there, and I was kind of impressed. So he, I was, that was enough for me to want to go back, but uh, the next week I went back to the Mormon church a second time, had another good greeting, you know. So, so after after that first meeting with the Mormon church, and then you had your, your meeting with the Catholics, and you're <laughs> – yeah, it's interesting. They're doing they're doing it in Latin, and you you're assuming yeah. full well that most of the people in there don't speak Latin, so they're just like, whatever, you got it, amen. And, <laughs> and, uh, so then you went back the next week uh, to the Mormons again. What happened after that, as far as how you progressed in the Mormon Church? You said you were in well, it for yeah, decades. That, that next week was uh, when I asked my friend if I could go with them again. He uh, he said, you don't want to go this week. And I said, well, why not? And he explained that uh, this was the week of the month that the members took turns going up and sharing their feelings about, uh, you know, um, just God and Jesus and Joseph Smith. And they just they would bear their testimonies, it was called. And he would he, he was a little concerned that I would kind of freak out about that. And I um, reminded him who I was and that I wouldn't freak out. And he said, okay. So I ended up actually standing up and talking about how much love I felt from people and stuff. And, it, you know, it was, that was a pretty neat experience for me. And that's when they uh, introduced me to the missionaries. The missionaries couldn't come into my house uh, because my dad was against it. He just was, uh, he just, he's, was against religion in general and uh, didn't want them in the house at all. So I would have to meet with them, you know, at the park or at a, another member's house or something. Um, but they began to teach me uh, how to be stuck in a religion. And it was, um, it was pretty, it was, it was, it was kind of diabolical when you think about it, uh, kind of insidious. And it's a, it's a trap that, like I said, I was in for decades what uh, what did these what did these missionaries have to say to you? Um, were they aware of of what you were searching for when they began to, to to speak with you? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, there was that kind of that small talk, getting to know each other a little bit, and, but then they had these memorized kind of discussions that uh, that yep, I memorized them myself when I when I went out and did did my full time mission. Um, and uh, it was just this gradual process of teaching me to equate 
positive feelings with getting answers from God. And, and it started out just real kind of basic, like you could just understand they were just talking about just how God watches over you and he loves you and he wants you to come live with him someday. And how do you feel knowing that? And, you know, I mean, how are you supposed to feel, right? Uh, well, I guess, I guess I feel pretty good, right? Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, they would just kind of, at that point, they looked at each other and kind of knowingly. And they looked back at me and said, do you know what that is? What, what is? That feeling, that good feeling you're having. That's the Holy Ghost telling you that what we're teaching you is true. Mm. Oh, Okay. Uh, I'll, you know, okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. You know, we, we humans, especially when someone's older than us, we, we want to believe them. We take them at face value. That's part of our species, part of what we do. So indeed I did that. I, I just said, okay, you know, if you say so. Well, the next thing is, you know, get taught about Jesus and how he died for you because everyone sins. And so that cuts you off from God who loves you. And isn't that amazing that Jesus died for you? How do you feel knowing that somebody cares about you so much they would suffer and die for you? Well, I guess right. I guess I feel okay about that. Well, you know what that feeling is? And on and on, you know, on and on, every single thing. And here, read this Book of Mormon and pray about it and see if you get that feeling again. And, well, guess what? Once you get primed that way, you're going to get that feeling again. Right. Lots of getting ready to say Read this book and see if you get that feeling again, setting you up for the possibility that that's going to happen while I'm reading this book. Yep, exactly. So they're just like, it's almost like planting a suggestion, but it's worse than planting a suggestion because they're giving you practice, identifying this this positive feeling as the Holy Ghost, uh, verifying truth to you. And then, you know, third time's a charm, then it's, uh, you know, Book of Mormon, and then eventually it's go and pray and see if God wants you to be baptized and see if you get that feeling again. I like how you say. I like how you say that the missionaries taught you to use subjective feelings and to accept those feelings as confirmation of truth. Um, The 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 word that we put in our title after skepticism is inculcation. Uh, To inculcate is to instill by persistent instruction. Uh, teach someone an attitude or idea or habit by persistent instruction. Um, th- it, it sounds very much like this was designed to show you confirmation bias, designed to train you to associate all good things, um, all all of those subjective feelings that you that you mentioned um, uh, yeah. towards towards not just not just anything but a specific interpretation of a specific God. This, this trains the mind to rely on confirmation bias. That's, that's exactly it. You're being trained to use confirmation bias to get your information. You're being trained to surrender skepticism to a warm feeling. You get this warm feeling, and that to you then becomes truth. Uh, if you're raised in the church, then you're taught as a child to do that. You're taught through song as a as a primary child, and then you're taught as you continue to grow up. And then you go on a mission and you teach other people to do that same thing, as though that could lead you to, you know, to to only one reality. That's mm. kind of the weird thing. 
you look around, I mean, that's part of what happened. Uh, I know I'm, I'm skipping ahead too much, but eventually that's that's a big part of what caused me to go, <laughs> wait a minute. Well, and I was just wondering about that because we're talking about the indoctrination, like you said, of, of a child. It, it starts at yeah. birth, but, but we, you know, we know from studying the brain, the impressionable, impressionable ages, and we know that uh, the perfect ages for indoctrination are the 10 years yeah. between four and 14. And and you were saying that you were, uh, I think you said you were 14 when you were, you know, this nerdy kid who was lonely. Right. So you're right at right. The, the, you know, right on the cusp of that age where you're impressionable yeah. enough for that to settle in. And I'm wondering if maybe because it was right at the end of that is why you were able to later on in life, albeit decades later, um, start to let that skepticism seep back in. Because of why? Uh, because it was at the end of the indoctrination age, because you weren't exposed mm. to it until you were 14, and you weren't That's exposed right. to it the entire 10 mm. years of the of the perfect Maybe. age. Maybe, but uh, also, um, you know, uh, doubt is interesting, and uh, and I had I had had doubts as things went along. Um, I don't know. I, I think. <laughs> I I would like to have some more conversations maybe with people who understand psychology really well so that from their perspective they can kind of help me understand how they don't see that <laughs> how they don't how they don't see that so like uh people who understand psychology and who are mormons and understand like how the brain can be influenced and learns learn things. You know how how do you how do you do that? How do you hang on once you kind of see what that is? Uh, I'm not sure where we want to go from here, guys. Um, once once you were you were spending time with these missionaries, at what point did you decide that that you had had enough confirmation bias in youth to to take the next step and to and to join Mormonism? For that matter, what exactly is involved with joining Mormonism? Well, I mean, it was a process. In fact, um, as a 14 year old kid, um, I was too really immature to make that decision. And um, sort of wasn't really allowed to by my parents uh, until I was 18. But I still affiliated with them and did activities with them and that kind of thing. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then it was just kind of a matter of uh, sort of I was a part of that social system anyway. So I, I was as I was looking at, you know, what was I going to do after high school? Um, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like possibly going to a church school and things like this. But um, yeah, that that uh, that that just completely kind of reinforced this notion that this is that I'm doing the right thing. You know, I'm just I'm following you, along with these beliefs. So you said that they they taught you the things that you know while they were talking to you is the things that you ended up eventually using yourself as a missionary in the church uh, through decades in the church. What, what positions did you hold? How, how high in the church did you go? How many people do you think you talked to and, and employed those tactics on? Oh yeah. I mean, I talked to many, many people, many people. And I, I have a lot, I have actually a lot of shame about that now, but I, 
that I tried to do that same thing to other people. I, I understand that I was kind of coming, coming from a position of innocence in doing that. I see it now for what it is. I, I didn't at that time I really thought I was doing a really good thing, but I still have a lot of guilt for the people that I've, that I talked to over the years and on my mission. I mean, you know, you talk about those, uh, you were talking about those like impressionable times. Well, there's other times too in our adult life that we're more susceptible to things. And so like, for example, we were taught to watch for people who are going through major life changes who had maybe had a a death in the family or who, you know, had 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 a recent divorce or something. If something really upsets your life, you then, can temporarily become a very susceptible or open to a, a different way of thinking. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I now feel like I preyed on people and uh, mm. I do, I have some, uh, have you some know, guilt. at, at the risk of giving you any more kind of guilt over that, because trust me, you deserve no guilt. You should feel no guilt. Like you said, you were coming out from a place of innocence. But preying on people uh, sounds like uh, the, the right terminology for it because, as you were describing to me, people who had just been through a divorce or people who had a death in a family and you were, you were taught to look for that and to approach mm-hmm. those people, that seems no different to me than uh, a lioness teaching her cub you want to go after the slow of the prey or the one with it's the limp. Or, what it absolutely yeah. is absolutely is so you're out there looking for people who you can help and lift up and you're also kind of looking for the most downtrodden the most the weakest of the people to approach with this with this message with this this uh this message of salvation this message of here 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 comes the church to save the day and make your life better and yeah it's uh it's it is it's uh it's very predatory you uh, you said that you did go on a uh, on a mission. Is that something that 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 all Mormons do? No, I would say that the the core hardcore Mormons still see it as the rite of passage of young men. Um, more young women now are wanting to go on a mission than they used to before, but it's. It is. Um, it, it's taught that that men should go on a mission, and that women can go on a mission, and uh, it's seen as a rite of passage for men to do so. Did you get any kind of? Was there any special um, um, training or exercises that you went through to become a missionary? Was there anything? Uh, were you, was it explained to you? This is this is the methodology for converting people. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. At the time that I went, uh, missionaries who uh, served in English-speaking countries would spend a month at the Missionary Training Center in Utah. And you go through about 10 hours a day of training of uh, just – it's basically classes in memorizing these lessons, in memorizing scriptures, in how to teach, in – uh, and there was there was uh, there was a PE, you know, that everyone looked forward to. Uh, yeah, it was it was um, it was quite a intense training period to prepare. 
Yeah. Were you employing? Uh, would you say that you were employing essentially the, the the same methods, where you would you would you would uh, talk to a person and and sort of ask the same kind of questions? How do you feel when I tell you that there is that there is a God who loves you? How do you feel when I tell you that uh, this this person, the the Messiah, died for your sins so that you can be with God? Was that sort of the approach? Yeah, and I don't know if they've backed off of this, but they were unashamedly just teaching you that you're learning something called the commitment pattern. This is called the mm. commitment pattern. You're helping people to make a commitment to God by going through this pattern. So, yeah, you are absolutely overtly taught this method of convincing people. And uh, wow. I will not say so. Now, that may have changed. They maybe no longer call it that, but uh, for many years, for decades they called it the commitment pattern that that's that's an interesting choice of phrase because um it sort of it sort of says exactly what it is it kind of it kind of demonstrates that this is uh this is a bit of salesmanship yeah Um, we're going to get you to just answer questions first then we're going to get you to pray and commit to doing that and follow through with that commitment then we're going to commit you to read scriptures and follow through with that commitment. And then we're going to get you to commit to come to church, and you follow through with that commitment. And then we're going to get you to commit to baptism. Mm. And then our job is done. <laughs> um, I want to talk... Uh, no, go ahead, Corey, please. I wanted to talk a little bit more about... Um, after after going on a mission, after, after uh, you know, becoming... A, a full-fledged member. You, you said that you held the positions of elder and high priest. Can you can you expand upon what those terms mean, what, what the differences between them, how you achieve those things, and what the responsibilities are? Yeah. Um, most young men become an elder either when they go to serve one of these full-time missions at age 18, 19, 20, uh, or they be, or they become an elder when they go off to college. So it's, it's sort of like, okay, now you are, you are a man, and so you, you become an elder in the church. And that's sort of the time that you're going to be raising your, your young family and kind of helping them through that. And so you, you sort of fellowship with other uh, men of that kind of same similar station in life. You know, you're all kind of going through similar things there. Uh, and then as your kids kind of leave the house, um, then people start looking at you more of a, a high priest, which is kind of, uh, you know, that's sort of the next level up. These are the, the empty nesters become high priests. Uh, high priests are the, the, the bishops of the wards and uh, the stake presidents. And, and you know, this so is – um... This is uh, reminding me of uh, when we were doing our show on Scientology. Like, so I assume that as you're uh, an adolescent male in the church and you know that becoming an elder one day is a thing, uh, that that's like something you look forward to. Like something yeah. that you're like, this is going to happen one day. And then you meet a girl and that's exciting. And you've already been taught to equate good, positive feelings with, with God and the church. So now you meet a girl and you're going to get married and, and you know, you're going to start a family right away. And so you're, you're elated about this love that you're feeling. And then you're also like, well, now I'm starting a family. Now I'm going to become an elder. And I even feel even I'm going to equate all these good feelings of, of just starting a relationship along with the church and God and, and everything. 
it seems like much like Scientology, the, the looking forward to the next stage, Absolutely. the next level that I'm gonna that I'm gonna reach. Yeah, especially for the young men. The young women don't have kind of something similar, but an 11 or 12 year old uh, male Mormon is going to be a deacon, and and part of his duties will be to to pass the sacramental bread and water that they pass through the congregation. Uh, if he kind of kind of stays with that and does well and stays in the church and keeps coming, then he can become a a teacher and then a priest. So and then, deacon, you know, preacher, elder, priest. There's there's just level after level after level to obtain. Teacher Something deacon. Always to strive for. Yeah, and then you become an elder, and then you become a high priest. Yeah. And each one above the other, so there's a pride in obtaining them in a in a in a goal to obtaining the next. Yeah, different duties, responsibilities that you can have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is true. I, That's part of it. If I may ask, what what labels would you um, self-describe now? What um, what 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 terms would you use for your current position on the God question? I have I avoid labels, but I have been told by a lot of people who call themselves atheists that I'm one <laughs> because I I don't believe in any particular God, I don't know for sure that there's even one there, which I am told means that I have, that I can't say I have a God belief, and therefore I am an atheist, Um, and some would put agnostic with that. I don't have a knowledge of whether there's a God or not a God, I just don't, I don't have any knowledge about that, and I also don't have a belief. So I, I kind of I accept that um, people who see themselves as atheists see me as one too, and as an agnostic atheist. Okay. So you, I'm sorry, Corey. I just uh, you you went through this journey in the church. You you went through these steps. You became elder. You, your, your children start leaving the house. You become a high priest. Uh, uh, you you know you missioned. You talked to people the same way you were talked to and converted people. At what point or what was the moment, what was the catalyst for you thinking, uh, maybe this isn't true? Yeah. Well, and and again, I had had doubts along the way. And some of my biggest doubts were things like, um, you know, the blacks weren't given the, the priesthood and allowed to be a part of the church for a long time. And it coincidentally... Uh, the something were like given, 1956 or something. I, I... Yeah. It, it, interestingly, um, you know, when when our country began to to embrace <laughs> equality, when there was a movement, then suddenly God told you know the Mormon prophet that uh, it was a good idea to treat blacks equally. But that didn't happen until the country realized it, right? Um, And interestingly, polygamy was another big issue for me. And interestingly, there was that same sort of a social connection. That is, the church practiced, openly practiced polygamy all the way up until it – there was just tons of pressure put on it from society. Once society said, you know, those Mormons are practicing polygamy. They need to quit it. We need to to drive them out of here, make it illegal. Well, then they went ahead and left. 
In fact, they left what was the United States at that time. They went into Utah Territory, which was indeed a territory. It hadn't even attained statehood. I don't know if you were aware of that, but that's what they did. They, they basically left the United States to go practice. And then once Utah became a state, well, then all of a sudden here comes the federal government saying, hey, you know, you can't do that anymore. And isn't that interesting that when society just said, you know, that's not a good idea to practice polygamy. We don't believe in it. Then the church suddenly, the prophet once again got this message from God saying, you know, you shouldn't do that anymore. That part has been fulfilled. So uh, I had big problems over those two issues through those years. And then I would always kind of get to a point of thinking, you know, this is going to drive me crazy if I keep thinking about this and I want to belong to the church and I want to believe in it. So I'm going to just take those questions and just put them, push them aside. And then I learned uh, through my counseling with people and talking in the different positions that I held in the church that that's what people do. That's what people in the church do when they're faced with these kind of contradictory things or things that just don't seem right. They learn to just push them aside and don't think about them. Let's put my mind on stuff that's, you know, more easy, that's easier for me to accept and that, that will kind of build me up. So, yeah, through the, through the years I did, I went through periods of time when I was kind of like, wait a minute, but what about, does that seem right? Um, then, uh, just five years ago and a little bit more, just a little over five years ago, um, I was watching a church movie, and I won't even mention what it was. It doesn't matter what it was, but, but this movie depicted these amazing, miraculous events, and uh, every single one of them, I kind of went, but wait a minute. Wouldn't human psychology kind of just account for that better? I didn't buy a single one of the miracles. I, I just thought, that's just people being people. You don't really need a God there for that. And when I kind of realized that, that's when, just like a house of cards, it just came tumbling down. I, it, just, it just didn't, I couldn't hang on to it anymore. It, it, it felt to me like there was this spider web and all the connections to all the, the trees and branches on every side of it simultaneously let go. There was just nothing to hold it up anymore. And it was, uh, it was kind of disturbing, actually. Was there was there a, a point where you um, began to to question the supposed goodness of God? Um, sort of sort of something like the the Epicurean paradox: um, if God is willing to prevent evil but is not able to, then He is not omnipotent. If He is able but not willing, He is not malevolent. Um, if He is yeah. both able and willing. Then whence comes evil? If he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? And you know what it did for you know what did that for me was the children. I became aware of a case where um, a child had, and there have been several of these that have been really kind of very newsworthy over the years. But I became a, uh, aware of one of these cases where somebody kidnaps a child and uses them sexually for literally decades. And I, rem- and, and I remember just clearly as, as kind of part of this letting go, I remember clearly just thinking God couldn't have inspired somebody to leave a door unlatched at some point in those decades. He, he couldn't do anything about that. 
even knowing, you know, and then and people would like make excuses. They would say things like, well, you know, the person that perpetrated that, they need to be held accountable for their sins. Really, really at the cost of a human life, you have to let a person actually suffer, even if you're God and you already know what the guy is going to do. You still have to make him suffer for – you have to go ahead and let the, let the, the child suffer just to what? Prove it? It's a test? Oh, man, your test materials are really expensive. Mm, anyway, I was kind of thinking that um, just that God, God couldn't have left a door unlocked or, or just just like prompted someone to leave a door unlocked or prompted someone to look into a window or, or snoop a little bit. That's the question that I always ask when – when it comes to that, and you say, "Well, what about the person who has done this to uh, a child?" and the answer you get is, "Well, God gave us free will, so the guy had free will to perform that evil." Um, but the child had free will, and the child's free will begged to to live and it's not being, be abducted and not be, you know, molested and violated. Yeah. And the child's free will doesn't matter. The the, the perpetrator's free will is all that that God accounts for. All that God yeah. lets lets happen, it's a ridiculous yeah. uh, notion. In, in fact, afterward, as I was kind of trying to think this through and make sense of it, I, I pictured this scene. You know how sometimes you're out at the store and you see a parent just completely losing it with their kid? Have you sure. ever kind of been in that uncomfortable situation? Well, I pictured that happening. I imagined myself being in like a grocery store, and here's this mom just absolutely losing it with her infant who's just crying, you know, and the, the parent is just – out of their mind, maybe they have mental health problems or something. And the, the parent picks up a can of beans and is just about to smash the head of the kid. And I happen to be right behind the parent, and I take the can of beans from the parent's hand. And I, and I somehow intervene. I somehow you know, provide some love to this whatever parent or kid or something. But somehow I kind of get in the middle of this and stop it from happening. I'm a hero. But somehow if God does it, He's this bad guy that took away somebody's free will. Why is it good for me to take her free will away in that case, but it's bad for God to do it? Makes no sense. Just doesn't just doesn't work point. for me. Doesn't work for me. Yeah, the, the the second that we can that we can imagine how we would behave when a horrible thing is happening, when we know that we would um, uh, we would intervene, even even possibly at the potential cost of our own, uh, of our own well-being, that we might uh, risk our own life and limb in order to try to stop uh, an injustice or, or stop violence from happening to someone else. Um, we find that we are more moral than God. The narrative of God in uh, Christianity, I presume that this is intact in Mormonism, is that he does intervene from time to time. Miracles occur. Um, he's giving you confirmation to the Holy Ghost. Uh, the Old Testament is littered with instances in which God appears and intervenes again and again uh, when things happen. He gets upset about sin. And so rather than waiting for the justice that happens after death, uh, the, the afterlife justice where you either go to heaven or hell, he doesn't wait that long. Most, most of the time in the Old Testament, he's more than willing to threaten Nineveh or destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, or wipe out the entire world with a flood. And he always does that in the name of destroying sin. If he's willing to do that in some cases, then it's very difficult to think of him as a consistent being, as being all just, uh, while watching all of these other horrible things 
happen? Why would you intervene sometimes, but not intervene in other times? Why would you intervene in antiquity and not intervene today? Right. Right. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, that was a huge part of it for me. Um, just, just being willing to think in that moment, being willing to consider the, the world and my life as a Mormon, how would it look, I asked myself, we were just thinking God exists. And would that be any different than the way it does look? And when I really asked myself that question, when I really asked, well, hang on a minute. Could this world look exactly like it does if we just thought God existed? Could everything that I thought I had received from God or answers that I had gotten, could all of that have just been my own thinking? Could all of this just be people's own thinking as led by, as as sort of, framed by this gospel message that they're taught either as children or by the missionaries or whatever. And I had to answer, yeah. Yep. I, I, I don't see any difference between this world that we live in that that's, you know, supposedly a God governs and a world that we live in that really, no, we just think that a God governs. And at that point I went, well, wait a minute. Then what, is the difference between a real God and imagined God. And I, mm. and I couldn't come up with a difference. Sure. It's, it's interesting to me that um, the beginning of this is sort of, sort of as, as we've spoken about, it sort of relies on, on uh, the nature of childhood. Um, when you when you talk to someone, uh, when you begin this inculcation process, when you start the commitment pattern, it is uh, it is so helpful when the when the child is already a member of the church or is young enough to be convinced of certain notions. Childhood is a time yeah. of innocence. It's a time of trust. Um, children are not natural skeptics. And this is, no. this is probably an evolutionary trait. When, when mom says, don't eat the red berries, when mom says, don't touch the stove, we all have the story of the kid who does it anyway and learns the lesson the hard way. But right, right. it was necessary for a long time that you obey your parents because they know about the world. They know don't go near the dark forest because that's where the tigers live. They know that, mm -hmm. that, that there are certain things that are life-threatening. So when your parents tell you something, it's, it's, a, it's a survival instinct. It's a, it's a survival trait to just take what they're saying at face value. It's very easy to therefore trick a child to say, well, an adult with authority who seems to know what they're talking about is telling me something. It's very hard for a child to distinguish between that which we should apply skepticism to and that which might save your life if you, if you believe it. This is why children will believe in the tooth fairy and in Santa Claus. It takes a while for empathy to form and then a while longer for skepticism to form. Yeah. Yep, and this is also why the various teachings teach people to be like a child. That's part of of staying stuck in it is staying, you know, credulous. <laughs> this is why the uh, the God figure is often portrayed as a father figure to keep you a child of him. Um, yep. You know, we were talking the other day, Mikey, and I was asking, you know, what do you think maybe keeps um, the adult involved in the religion 
you know, we're just talking about the children don't have the maybe the critical thinking skills or the skepticism uh, necessary developed yet. But then after yeah. that does develop, and you're still involved in the adult as an adult and you know in religion until of course you you felt what you felt. But prior to that, um, I, I asked you if you thought maybe uh, it was sort of uh, on the level of like Stockholm syndrome, like the uh, religion has you held hostage and then you you start to identify with it as your captor. There are a lot of things. In fact, that's something that I, I actually kind of studied because I really got curious about what was it that kept me so focused and fixed? Why couldn't I kind of see it from the inside? You know, you know, I mentioned before that everyone who's in a cult doesn't think they're in one. They think everyone else is in one, but they don't think they're on. Well, kind of the same thing about just being indoctrinated or inculcated from the inside, you can't see it. You cannot see those blinders. I was really curious about that, and I did quite a bit of studying about what does keep an adult brain in this. And a lot of it is sort of a social pressure. You have everyone around you telling you, this is really good. This is really, really good to believe. Yeah, this is really good. Oh, I heard your testimony. It really touched me, you know. And so you're getting all this kind of positive feedback for, for doing and saying these things and thinking these things, having these thoughts. It's very socially reinforced. And then on the other side of that, there's this sort of fear of being cut off. So many times in the Bible and even more times in the Book of Mormon, there's this threat that if you don't believe, you're going to be cut off. And really that means ostracized. That means shunned. You're going to be driven out of town. You're not going to be accepted by our community anymore. And that's, that is – it's a life sentence, really. We depend on each other. We are socially dependent on each other. So when that creeps into the teachings, you're you're using a fear tactic on people to you you better believe you better believe this, or it's you know life threatening. It's going to be really bad on you. Meanwhile, if you have doubts and you take them to your leaders, you're you're taught to go back to the things that you're not in doubt of. Keep thinking about those things. And these other questions, they'll be answered at some point. Maybe after you die and then you meet God, you can ask him. Then you'll have answers to all these questions. So you're sort of taught to not ask any questions that challenge. And if you do doubt and you raise questions, there are raised eyebrows at you. Like, what are you doing? You know, what it, What's the matter with you? And it's sort of you get shunned back into your little believing spot. It's very powerful. And you don't mm. see it happening. You just it's normal. You're actually taking part in it, doing it to other people, and be, being really unaware that you've bought into this social system of reinforcing the belief. It's insidious. It really is. What what would what would you say to someone who um, might be might be listening to what you have to say? Might be someone who is. Um, in the Mormon church or, or, or a part of any religion for that matter, who is feeling what you are describing, who is feeling uh, doubtful, who is feeling some skepticism. Perhaps they are, they are trying to silence that a bit. Perhaps they are worried about uh, the threat uh, of, of being excommunicated or of being rejected from the social circles that they rely on. Um, if there was someone out there who, who came across this um, and was feeling all of those things, what would, what would, what would you encourage them to do? Um, well, I would say that there is a teaching in your belief system that is correct. It's not applied correctly, but it is correct. 
and that is that the truth really will make you free. Uh, keep asking questions. Don't let the discomfort of not knowing or the discomfort of possibly there's a, an inconvenient, really, really inconvenient answer dissuade you from continuing to keep the question alive and looking for answers. Uh, somebody really smarter, smarter than me said, uh, said that things that are true are demonstrably true. Things that are true are demonstrably true. The same person said that uh, you can't have evidence in your heart because that's not evident. So things that are true, there's evidence that there's true, that, th that they're true. If there isn't evidence, then how do you distinguish what you're wanting to believe or being told to believe from something that is just made up? Things that are true you can demonstrate are true. So keep asking the questions. Don't, don't give up. Don't get pushed into silence or, or, or just complacent. Keep asking. It's, it's so important to refuse to be lonely. When you are surrounded by people that um, share your faith or share a faith that you don't, and you are reliant on that community when you find value in that, in that social structure, um, but you don't fit in. It is, it is very, very important that you remember to never be alone. Um, we live in an age when we can all connect with one another at the touch of a button. We have the internet. We have a million uh, uh, telephone numbers that, 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 that lead to, to hotlines to help with this kind of a struggle. There are people out there who are doubters, who are, who are ex-religious people, ex-theists, uh, people that are atheists. Uh, there are support groups uh, that are available. And if you're struggling with this kind of a thing, as we mentioned last week, you should certainly uh, try to find uh, friends that can help you through that, somebody who you can soundboard your ideas with. We talked about um, uh, the Recovering from Religion Foundation. You can get them at recoveringfromreligion.org and get into contact with somebody who can help talk through your doubts and, and help give you some encouragement. We want everybody to, uh, to know about that and to utilize that if they need to. That's really great advice. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Mikey, that was amazing information. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about that and opening up about all of that. We really appreciate it. I hope it helps. You know, um, you'll hear things. Uh, we as, Atheists often say things like, we don't care if you as an adult are accepting this is true, but please don't force it on your kids. Please let them decide for themselves. After all, this is a question that adults have wrestled with for thousands of years. Uh, Richard Dawkins said, if you're religious at all, it is overwhelmingly probable that your religion is that of your parents. If you are born in Arkansas and you think Christianity is true and Islam false, knowing full well that you would think the opposite if you had been born in Afghanistan. You are the victim of childhood indoctrination. I agree with Professor Dawkins, but I wonder, is it possible for a true believer to not indoctrinate their kids simply because they believe to not do so is dangerous for them? The irony is that often these same people are the ones who choose to not actually protect their children from dangers, like the anti-vax crowd. 
or the often but not over mentioned on this show sect of Mormons in Idaho and like and, and the like who choose the protection of their imagined God rather than the actual protection of modern medicine. The point is to the already indoctrinated, the worst possible thing they could do would be to not share their particular religion's doctrine with their child. To them, the world is full of the wicked, the agents of evil that only the belief in their God and adherence to his commands can defend against. How then do we get them to drop their imagined shield against an imagined enemy? Is street epistemology the way, or are you better off dealing in counter-apologetics, the preferred method of a few of us here at ISM? It doesn't matter. What matters is that you are engaging. What matters is that you are out there asking people to use their intellect that, as Kirk Cameron would say, has been circumnavigated by dogma. Finally, to those of you who are listening that are currently in a religion, we implore you, for the sake of future generations, to not shut your child, shut down your child's critical thinking. <clears throat> to shut not, not shut down your critical thinking. To understand that it's okay to demand more than because God said so. To rightfully ask, is it moral to judge and subjugate the other? When you are engaged by a non-believer, try not to see it as an attack on yourself, but rather a challenge to your beliefs. And if these challenges leave you skeptical of those beliefs, then perhaps it's time to drop them. Because after all, to be skeptical is to be thinking. And you should never stop thinking. Okay. That's the show for tonight. We'd like to thank Mikey so much for joining us and sharing his very powerful personal story and experiences. Um, again, as uh, Corey mentioned, uh, if you are struggling with any of these things, reach out to Recovering From Religion at uh, recoveringfromreligion.org. Uh, fantastic organization to help you out there. We'd like to thank everyone out there listening on Blog Talk and Periscope for joining us tonight. If you're not already doing so, follow Corey, myself, on the show, uh, Twitter and Periscope, Corey at Dofernephrin, and Scott at El Duderino, and ISM at ISM Podcast underscore. I'd like to say a special thank you to our awesome support crew for helping the show come together smoothly each week. Young Athlon 399 and Kat and Arban, who uh, do a lot of the behind the scenes and we get to take credit for it. Thank you guys so much. If you and have been enjoying the show, would like to see it grow and be more successful, please consider becoming a Patreon at the show, going to patreon.com slash informpodcast and helping us out so we can keep having awesome content for the show. All of our episodes are available on Blog Talk and iTunes. Um, we are Informed Secular Minds and are here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Central Time. Thanks again for listening. Please join us again next week for another great show. 